I invite you to take your Bible, grab a pew Bible, turn together with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, as we worship God through preaching and hearing His Word. Last Sunday, I kind of gave an introduction to the book of 1 Corinthians. This is our new sermon series. This is verse-by-verse series that will probably take us into next spring, maybe next summer. And last week, I tried to give an introduction to the book, maybe a quick brief overview of some of the themes. Uh, But while last week was my introduction, I think today, with these first three verses and even next week with verses 4 through 9, we kind of get the Apostle Paul's introduction to 1 Corinthians. And I hope you see that this morning. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Remember, this is the Holy Spirit speaking in the temple, the body of Christ, to His people through His infallible Word. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray again. Our great God, we stop and we acknowledge that you are the God of all grace. You are the God of all peace. And so, in like manner, we also call upon you through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we call upon you asking you to show us grace and peace this morning. That we too might be sanctified in Christ Jesus and live as your saints. We love you. We thank you for hearing our prayer. In Christ's name, amen. Difficult and awkward conversations. Inevitably, we all, all have to have them from time to time. And typically, we dread them, unless there's something wrong with you. I want you to think about times in which you've had to have difficult and awkward conversations. Think about times when you've had to confront someone about something they've done wrong. Think about times when maybe you've heard something, third party, that someone has said wrong about you. Maybe they've spread false information about you. Maybe they've raised questions or made implications about you that just aren't right. How do we typically handle those things? Don't we typically tend to think about them over and over in our mind? Don't we kind of practice and prepare exactly how we're going to approach them, carefully thinking through exactly what we're going to say? Don't we often find ourselves maybe wanting to just come right out and tell them exactly how we feel, and then we kind of maybe back down a little bit, calm down, and remind ourselves to exercise some self-control? I suspect that's exactly what's happening to the Apostle Paul here. Just a few years earlier, Paul had planted this church and he had spent a year and a half 
carefully building them up in sound doctrine. But now he's trading letters with them back and forth, and he finds them making some, you know, um, dangerous assumptions and asking some uncomfortable questions. And then, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, he hears from someone in the church. Chloe writes him a letter. And Chloe tells him about some of the problems and some of the sins and some of the disorder that's going on in the church. And so now, Paul knows, i got to have some really difficult conversations with them. How does he then go about this? Well, what do we typically do when we need to have these kind of awkward and difficult conversations? Don't we typically start with small talk? You know, we kind of ease into things. How's your family? Yeah, how are things going at work? You, you still going hiking every weekend? You know, don't we kind of ease into them and then maybe, you know, hey, say, by the way, there's something I wanted to run by you. Well, I think if we're reading this epistle at first glance, we may think that that's what Paul is doing here. We know from the letter that he's going to address some very serious things. We know from the letter that his reaction to them is going to go from astonishment at their behavior to then correction and admonishment, and then right back again to astonishment when it comes to the next issue they're struggling with over and over again. In this sense, then, doesn't it seem as though these three verses here, these opening verses, are, are kind of like, you know, just standard greetings and salutations, the small talk? Doesn't it seem that this is like the rubber stamp that, you know, Paul, like, puts on every one of his epistles? Doesn't it seem as though maybe he's beginning with this um, small talk before getting down to business? Well, Brethren, today I want you to see that nothing could be further from the truth. These opening verses are not throwaway words. They are not Paul's attempt at small talk or conventional greetings. They are not a gentle easing into the subject matter at hand. And I think that we risk misunderstanding the rest of the book if we look at these opening verses that way. I want you to see today that these words reflect a very carefully planned and calculated response to what Paul will address later in the letter. I want you to see that here we find the seeds of everything else that he's going to say. We find the cure to all of the sin and problems that are going on there. We find here the theological groundwork which will serve as the basis on which he can then address every other practical question and sin in the epistle. And brethren, it's important for us to see it this way. You know, part of my job as a pastor is to teach you how to read and interpret Scripture. It's part of my job. Not just to tell you what God's Word says, but, but to help you learn how to study it yourself. Right? You know, you can give a man a fish or you can teach him how to fish. We, we need to see how you, we can't just skim over any passage of Scripture, even the sections that, that seem formal and rote. It's important then that we can pay careful attention to the ver- first three verses here. But even more than that, I want you to see in this as well, it's important that we pay t- careful attention to these verses because we need to see Paul's love for this wayward church. And we need to see his heart and his method of shepherding them. I mean, he doesn't just write and tell them what to do. 
He doesn't just write and, and say, change your actions, stop and stop sinning and get in line. He doesn't write to exercise his authority as an apostle and force them to, to shape up. He writes to win them over. He doesn't just want them to change their actions. He wants them to want to change their actions and to want to for the right reasons. So far more than just explaining to them the law and calling them to obey it, he wants them to see Jesus Christ in him crucified and he wants to draw out the implications from the gospel for how they should then live. And I want you to see this this morning from this opening greeting because this is how Jesus Christ shepherds your soul as well. So with that in mind, I want to explore what makes this greeting so special and so important. And I want to point out four things this morning. Four things from this opening greeting. Conversion, calling, community, and Christ. Four C's, like a good Baptist. Alliteration, four C's. Conversion, calling, community, and Christ. Let's think about what Paul says about their conversion. Their conversion. We're going to get to verse 1 in a moment, but let's look beginning at verse 2 with how he addresses the church. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. If we're going to rightly understand and apply everything in this book, we need to first understand and see how Paul addresses this church and those in this church as genuine believers. To those sanctified is a synonym for conversion or a metaphor for conversion. He's writing to those who have been converted. Of course, we know that, um, well, there's so much sin going on in the church. This, you know, this is kind of a little bit hard to believe in some respect. We know the church had fallen into deep factions. We know that there was sexual immorality prevalent in the church. We know that they were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were abusing uh, the spiritual gifts. They were abusing one another. But right off the bat, Paul deals with them. He, uh, he begins by affirming that they are sanctified, that they are holy before God. That's what the word sanctified means. It means holy. Holiness is an attribute of God. He is entirely otherly. He is entirely pure. He is entirely set apart. And so, although we are by nature sinful and worldly and defiled, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in our union with Him, Believers are purified by Christ's blood, and we are set apart as God's own special treasured possession. So this opening is very important. He's talking to believers. He's talking to those who, before God, are holy and pure. And this helps us see, I mentioned this earlier, but um, this helps us see what a true church is. I mentioned this earlier in our liturgy. What is a true church? Well, the church consists of those who have been made holy in Jesus Christ. A church is a collection of individuals who've been cleansed from their guilt by Christ's blood, purified in heart and conscience, and set apart for God's purposes. Now, of course, we might say, well, does Paul, is Paul affirming that everybody in the church is converted? 
After all, there's some pretty serious sin going on there. Well, even in chapter 5, Paul calls them to excommunicate one of their members who had fallen into sin. So I think the clear answer is no. He does not assume, or he's not saying that everyone in the church is a believer and everyone is sanctified. Paul's words do not mean that everyone on the membership role is holy. I think even at the very end of the epistle, like the second to last verse, uh, he ends by saying, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And he's saying, there might be some in your midst who don't really love the Lord. Paul knows that they're a mixed body. Every church is a mixed body. Every church this side of heaven. But the scriptures always deal with individuals based upon their profession. It doesn't matter what family you're born into, what home you're raised in. It doesn't matter how long or how often you're in church or attend church. It doesn't matter that simply that you show up. The essential matter is what do you profess? What do you profess? An essential part of being a Christian, an indispensable part of being a Christian, is that you have professed faith before the world. You have said, my faith and hope are in Christ. I am renouncing this world. I'm renouncing sin. I'm renouncing self. And I'm following the road to Calvary. The road of Calvary in following the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, by emphasizing that they are sanctified, this is Paul's subtle way of calling them back to what they professed. Brethren, that's always a critical component to confronting and correcting sin. We know that true believers can fall into some horrible sins at times. We also know that a mark of genuine faith is that when believers are confronted with their sin, they eventually turn from it and return to Christ. That's part of what Paul is doing here. Don't you see that you have been made holy? Don't you see that you've been purified and set apart? Don't you see the need to live in light of your profession of faith? However, just as the word sanctified here points back to their profession that they made in their baptism, think also about how or what this word conveys about what was done to them. Most specifically, the word sanctified here is in the perfect passive tense. Perfect passive. Remember fourth grade (laughs) grammar literature? Perfect. The perfect tense points to how it's a past act that's been completed, but it has ongoing implications. It's not ongoing, but it's completed. It's done. You are holy. But the passive aspect points to how it was something done to them from the outside. You didn't make yourself holy. You weren't the actor in this verb. This is holiness that is received, not holiness that is achieved. So they were purified not by their works, not by their good deeds, not by their deserving of it, but by the loving kindness of God. Titus 3.4, when, when God our Savior appeared, the preaching of the word, as the metaphor there, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, 
but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God is the actor in washing and renewing that makes us holy and sanctified and pure. We are the passive recipient of that action. To those sanctified then. Paul is saying, this is the foundation of your repentance. I do think it's important that he says to those sanctified rather than to those justified, like he says in other places. The church's problem here is not that they failed to grasp justification by faith. The problem was that they had failed to grasp the holy life that we are called to in the gospel. So he affirms that in their conversion, every believer is already sanctified, even though many were still engaging in sinful behavior. And his point is, don't you see there's a connection between who you are before God and how you shall now live? Don't you see that God has begun this work of holiness in you by the declaration of your holiness in the courtroom of His justice? purified before Him, based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ, and that that is your motivation, and that is also your guide for how you are then to walk in holy living? Because you are in Christ, your positional holiness, you are to then live holy lives, progressive holiness. Because you are united to Christ, who is holy, you must no longer live as though you're united to this world unholy the same could be said we often say why do people sin right we are not sinners because we sin we sin because we are sinners the bible always starts with who we are before it turns to what we then do In the same way, we are not holy because of how we live. We are holy already in Christ. Therefore, we then live holy lives. So the essential part of this letter and of the Christian life is this constant call to be who you are before Him. And that's what he appeals to here by highlighting their conversion. But this is related to what we see next in calling. So conversion, and now let's consider calling. And here's where we'll look at verse 1. Look at it again. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes. I hope you notice the theme here. When you read the Bible, always pay attention to words that are repeated. That's obvious. Paul, though, says he's called by the will of God to be an apostle. But then in verse 2, what does he say about them? To the church, those called to be saints. In his wording, in this opening, again, not throwaway words here, he's intentionally drawing a parallel between his calling as an apostle and their calling to be holy. That's what saints means. It's a synonym for sanctified. It means holy. Holy people. So think then about Paul's calling to be an apostle. We know know, he was on the road to Damascus. He was intent on murdering more Christians. 
Christ Jesus appeared to him and said, you are a chosen instrument of mine to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And Paul's life was turned entirely upside down. Everything changed. If we think about this, Paul and his calling to be an apostle, he didn't take that office up for himself. He wasn't desiring it. He wasn't seeking it. He wasn't wanting it. He didn't sign up for it. He didn't volunteer for it. He didn't equip himself for it. It was God's doing. It was God's action. It was God's calling on his life when he was hell-bent on going the opposite direction. This is an important thing to, to keep in mind here so you don't see Paul just you know, pulling rank here. Hey, I'm an apostle. So obey me. Well, he's calling, he's emphasizing his apostle of apostolic authority in order to emphasize that it's not his own, that he was commissioned by God for it. And that's kind of a subtle way of, of kind of hinting at the church hey, you know, all those factions in the church, all those people who are saying, I, have, I, have a, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas. He's saying, look, don't you know that Christ is Lord? Don't you know that even me as an apostle, that office is not my own? That this authority is not my own? So that all these other so-called authorities in your midst, whoever you're listening to, they don't have rank either? That God's calling is what matters? That God's will is what matters? In fact, this is further emphasized with this mention of Sosthenes. Um, who is this guy? Uh, well, we don't know exactly uh, because he's only mentioned here and then he's only mentioned, uh, this name only appears elsewhere in Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18 is the planting of the church in Corinth. Sosthenes was the ruler of the synagogue that Paul befriend, befriended when he planted this church. So I think, you know, we can assume this is the same guy. We don't know for sure because the name was a very common name back then. But, you know, if he appears here and then he appears at the planting of, of the church in Corinth in Acts 18, it's pretty safe to assume it's the same guy. Um, also, if you read this in, in, the, in the Greek, um, it doesn't say our brother Sosthenes. It says the brother, which is an unusual construction that points to the fact that um, it's somebody who's well known. Right. It's like saying the pastor. So we can assume that this is the same guy, but. In, in any case, the church knew who he was. And so we can think, well, maybe he was uh, an elder in the church who um, had visited Paul and was helping him pen this letter. Maybe he was the letter carrier who was entrusted to deliver the letter and then read it before the congregation. We, we don't know for sure, but what, what I want you to see, though, this is an evidence of Paul's humility. Paul was an apostle. Paul planted the church. Paul had been to the third heaven. And yet he includes with him, alongside of him, this relatively obscure man that we know nothing else about. You see the implication. Paul saying, you know, if I can associate with someone whose position of authority and giftedness is far below mine, why the pride and rivalries in your midst? Nevertheless, the overall point here, Paul's saying, my authority is not my own, my calling is not my own, and the same is true of you in Christ.
He tells them later in the chapter that not many of them were noble, not many of them were um, prominent in the eyes of the world when they were brought to Christ. They were at one time enemies of God. It was God who called them. It was God who saved them. So this, again, it's a subtle way of saying God's authority and God's calling and God's purpose must be preeminent in your life. And don't you know the same is just as important in our day as it was back then? We live particularly in a day and in a culture where personal autonomy and individuality rules and reigns. Nobody tells you what to do with your life. You know, pursue happiness. Pursue whatever it is that you want. Whatever it is that you find fulfilling. Whatever it is that you find proper and self-affirming. Brethren, we've got to always come back to the Gospel and how the Gospel of Jesus Christ is a call to die to self. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. The instrument of death. The instrument of suffering. The instrument of difficulty. That's the sovereign will and call of God upon your life if you are a Christian. So the implication is, Corinthians, just as I have been called to a specific commission, you have been called to a specific commission, and that specific commission is holiness. Just as I have no right or or, 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 uh, authority to leave off my calling and disregard it, lest I be like a Jonah, right? You don't have the right or authority or will to deviate from the path of holiness that God has called you to. If you are a Christian, you no longer live for your own purposes, but for God's. And so joined with this first point, we see you're united with a holy Savior, so live holy lives. You have been made holy in the courtroom of God's justice, so be who you are. And you have been called to holy living. That's God's purpose for your salvation, so walk in obedience to it. It's the path of sanctification. That's the theological groundwork that He lays that He will come back to again and again when He deals with every specific sin and issue within the church. Don't you know that you are not your own? He will say later. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Same thing. God's calling is preeminent. Thirdly, conversion, calling, and now community. Conversion, calling, community. I often say around here that sanctification is a community project. I like that phraseology. We tend to think instinctively (coughs) of our own Christian life as kind of just between us and God. It's kind of magnified times a thousand in our day with you know, our hyper-individualism and self-autonomy and isolation of our, of our culture. But the Scriptures are clear. We are, we are saved and we are sanctified in community with one another. That is the arena in which it happens. 
Your community, your church, is central to your sanctification and to your holiness, to the fulfillment of your calling. You can't do it alone. It's not just you and God in your Bible. That's secondary to you and the people of God in your Bible together. And that's Paul's point here. We need one another. Look at how he addresses uh, the church in verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, and then called to be saints, together with. Part of the calling is together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the emphasis here on God's church. We might ask the question this way. Whose church is this? Is this the church of Paul? Is this the church of Apollos? Is this the church of Cephas? Is this the church of a particular denomination? Is this the church of a particular group? Is this the church of particular leaders? Is this the pastor's church? No. The the church of God, the of here, of God, the, the, the grammar is possessive in the sense that it is the special possession of God. He owns it. Acts 20.28 makes it clear enough. The church of God, which He obtained with His own blood, you were bought with a price. Right? So when we think about the church of God in Corinth, He's reminding them, you are not your own. Except the you there is actually y'all. It's, <laughs> I could say that. We're in the South. It's you all. It's not you individually, it's you corporately. The church of God is not just a collection of individuals. Salvation, sanctification, is not just between us and the Lord. Paul is saying, look, this is a community that belongs to God. If it belongs to God, then God's will and God's desire and God's rule must hold ultimate sway in the life of the church. Another thing I say a lot, try to remind, particularly in our members' meetings, remind you all, Jesus Christ is the head of the church. It's not my church. It's not anyone's church. It's not, you know, the Pope in Rome. He is not the head of the church. Pastors and leaders and elders are not the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the true shepherd. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. His will must be preeminent in any and everything in the life of the church. So we we might think, well, well, how is His will followed and obeyed? His will is known in His Word. That's why we we are to be people of the book. We are to study Scripture. We are to know Scripture. We are to love Scripture. We are to submit to Scripture. It's part of our calling. That's why in our services, for example, our liturgy, there's at least six readings of Scripture every single service. We open with Scripture, we close with Scripture, we use it um, in our, uh, uh, to, to lead to confession of sin, we, we use it to strengthen our assurance, we use it uh, sitting under the instruction of the preaching, we use it in the administration of the Lord's Supper, and we do this not, not out of tradition, And certainly not because we're trying to be as boring as possible, as some scoffers may say. 
We want to saturate our meetings with Scripture because that is where we give the loudest and most prominent voice to the head of the church. It's not me speaking through the Word. I'm just the channel. I'm just the reader. It is Christ speaking in the midst of His people through His Word. That's one of our deepest convictions. In fact, you can, you can tell a lot about a church. You can tell a lot about who functions de facto as the head of the church by seeing the role of Scripture, uh, what role Scripture plays in their worship and in the life of the church. The church, every true church, is the church of God. And so, uh, even the, the greater point here, the church, though, is not just the church of God, but the church here in Corinth has been called to be saints together with every other church of God, every other place where the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is called upon. This is, I said earlier, definition of a true church. Those who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Churches that do not see the Lord Jesus Christ as the God-man are not true churches. Churches that do not worship the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe they worship themselves, maybe they worship something else, are not true churches. True churches worship the Lord Jesus Christ. True churches pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. True churches depend on upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And they submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to call upon Him. It's an act of commitment. It's an act of submission. It's an act of request and dependency as well. And it's the mark of every true Christian and the every true, every, every true church as well. If you don't call upon the Lord in your private life, you're not a Christian. Churches don't... You know, I mentioned we read Scripture six times in our worship... Well, we pray just as much as well. Right? We have a prayer after the call of worship. We have the, the pastoral prayer. We have a prayer before the preaching of the Word. We have a prayer before the, uh, the, the reading of um, um, uh, uh, the, the administration of the Lord's Supper. We, have, we, have, we sing prayers. We, we pray together in the confession of sin. That's the mark of a true Christian. The mark of a true church is prayer. And so Paul is pulling these things together and he's saying, this is God's church. This is what you do. But it's not just you. He thought about the greater and universal church as well. Those in every place who call upon the Lord Jesus Christ. They have been called to be saints together with all the worshipers of God. The church in Corinth, even even if we consider just the church itself, the local church, they're not isolated, they're not individual, and they're not self-sufficient. They're not a law to themselves. They don't exist for themselves. They weren't called to live for themselves. And it's a subtle way of saying, you can't act as if you have no relation to any other Christian outside your own midst. It's part of the problem in Corinth. They were obsessed with autonomy. Both as individuals, but also even as a corporate body as well. Even within their church. I'm of Paul, I'm of, Paul, uh, of Apollos, right? A separating from one another. Acting as if they were each, their little group was an island unto itself. 
Paul gently reminds him of the bigger picture and the bigger purposes of God. You know, here at CRBC, we are congregational in church government. We believe that every church is responsible for governing themselves. That the pattern we see in Scripture is that churches are not governed from the outside by a presbytery or a bishop or the Pope in Rome. And I will say, as we work through 1 Corinthians, I think we find the strongest biblical support for this form of church government in this book of 1 Corinthians. But nevertheless, even though we are congregational and self-governed, we do not believe in autonomy. We do not believe in independence. We are not an independent church. Our confession makes it clear that we have a duty and a responsibility before God as part of our calling to hold communion with other churches. These other churches can't come in and throw around their authority. Paul doesn't come into this church and throw around his authority. But they do counsel and they advise and they admonish. They hold us accountable. They rebuke and they demonstrate and we with them that no church is self-sufficient. No church is unique and independent. That we are called to live the Christian life, the holy life, alongside other believers both in this body and outside in the greater church as well. And Also, dare I say, even with saints of old that have passed, through their writings, they still speak and hold us accountable and they admonish and they correct and they teach. That's why the creeds and confessions and councils of the church hold such an important sway in our congregation. Scripture is higher. But they are the, the, the councils and, and creeds themselves are higher than our authority and certainly your authority as an individual. That's how the greater universal church serves to lead us into holiness. So brethren, again, think about the, the, the plague in our modern age of, of autonomy. We all tend to live in many ways isolated lives without community, and sometimes we can fall into just me and my Bible, just me and my God. Nobody can tell me what to do. I can live how I want. I can worship how I want. I can observe the Lord's table how I want, any way that I choose. But then also we can see a corporate kind of autonomy as well, where where we surround ourselves with people just like us. People we love to spend time with, and we avoid subtly those people who are of different cultures, different place of life than us different maybe convictions than us. That's dangerous. People come in here sometimes and they ask, well, you know, I've got children, I've got teenagers, and and are there, there, you know, I've had many people, visitors come in and say, well, we visited for a while, but, you know, there's really no, like, you know, like-minded people in my stage of life. There's nothing really for my children. And I'm not throwing that out completely. That's important. I, I can see the value in that. But if that becomes your criteria for determining a church, you're, you are being rebuked by the Apostle Paul in this letter because that's what the Corinthians were doing. I want to surround myself with people just like me. And Paul is saying, the Christian life is lived with people who are not like you, but are together called to holy lives. And that's what you need to live holy lives. 
So individually and corporately, you are not your own. We all need the help and assistance and companionship of other believers and other churches if we are to faithfully live out this call. Brethren, that leads us then to a conclusion. Fourth and finally, we can wrap this all up, kind of bring it all together. Conversion, calling, community, and now Christ. I hope you notice that Jesus Christ is mentioned, referenced, six times in these brief three verses. Everything that Paul says hints at and has relation to Jesus Christ. This is no accident. Jesus Christ is that which binds all of this up in perfect unity. Paul concludes in verse 3, this opening greeting, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace, of course, is the sum total of all of God's saving activity towards us. It's unmerited favor. It's free mercy. It's undeserved compassion. God has freely given grace to all believers. Nothing has been earned. Nothing has been deserved. So Paul starts with this grace right here in a church that's plagued by division and and power plays and personal rights. He's bringing them back to the fact that grace is ground zero. What do you have that you did not receive? He will say later. Something similar could be said about peace. Peace is not inner tranquility. It doesn't mean that there's an absence of conflict. Peace speaks to the objective relationship that we have with God and Christ. We've been reconciled. We are His children. We are no longer at war with our God. And He is no longer at war with us because of our sin. We have peace with God. Of course, the implication for Paul is if you have peace with God, how can you be at enmity with one another? Is Christ divided? There ought to be no conflict within the body of Christ, among His body, among His members, if you have peace with God. And so he's saying, grace and peace must characterize this church of God and Christ. What is true of you horizontally must be true of you vertically as well. But of course, both of these come to us from God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where I want to kind of end today by emphasizing that Christ is the center of this all. I argued last week that everything in this book comes down to Christ and Him crucified. And I argued that Christ and Him crucified must be the center of our church, must be the center of our homes, must be the center of our families, must be the center of our lives. And that's what we see here. Paul is an apostle of Christ. The believers have been made holy in Christ. The church, both local and universal, are those who call upon the name of Christ. And grace and peace from God comes to us in and through Jesus Christ. It is because of Him that we are converted, sanctified, made holy. It is through Him that we are called to Christ-like holy living. It is in in Him that we are joined together in community with one another to call upon His name together. And it is through Him that all of the blessings of God flow and are summarized in the grace and the peace that have been poured out upon us. 
With this verse 3, Paul is saying, look away from yourselves. Look away even from me as an apostle. And see the Lord Jesus Christ. He is your conversion. He is your calling. He is your community. He is your, and your union with Christ, your source of grace and peace and the answer to every one of your sins and problems that I'm going to address in these next 16 chapters. So brethren, recall here the famous illustration by our Lord, I am the vine and you are the branches. We have been grafted into the vine in our conversion. We have been called to bear fruit, right? We have been attached to the vine and the greater community of the other branches. And all of our strength and all of our sustenance, the grace and peace necessary to bear fruit in community comes through the nourishment of the vine, Christ Himself. Brethren, as we end today, I just want to ask you, think about what's going on in your life right now. Whatever sins, whatever problems, maybe you are at enmity with others, maybe you have something against someone else, Maybe there are factions and disagreements. Maybe there are struggles, sins that entangle you. I want you to see, no matter what, no matter what it is, you can go back to your conversion and see how God dealt with you and the favor and forgiveness that He showed you. You can examine your calling. You can take into account the body of Christ and you can see what is offered to you through the nourishing vine of Jesus Christ And that is the essential framework that will help you answer and address any and every issue in the Christian life. May God give us the grace to see Christ and Him crucified. May God give us the grace to tackle sin and difficult issues by going deeper and deeper into the Gospel and drawing out those implications. Amen. Let's pray.